Eightfold Path is actually the fourth noble truth. If you study, if you come and study the four truths, the four nobling truths, the first truth is the truth of suffering, the second truth is the truth of there are causes to suffering, the third truth is that there is a possibility of freedom or cessation of suffering, and the fourth truth is that there is a path that leads to freedom, to cessation, to awakening. And we've been going through the Eightfold Path, which begins with uh, what's called right view or right understanding, different translations, both view and understanding, it's the same truth. Um, and um, it's about how we perceive and understand the Dharma and freedom and how to live it in our lives. And the second noble truth, the second um, component of the Eightfold Path is right intention, which is when we start to understand and see how reality works, then what do we want to, what's our intention? What do we value? What do we care about? And what do we, how do we intend to implement what we care about in our lives? And that has a lot to do with letting go and goodwill and compassion. And then the next three components of the Eightfold Path are a right speech, right action, right livelihood. And we talked last time about right speech and the, both the magic of speech and the power of speech. The, that speech can do um, uh, harm and it can heal and it can do well. It can be a benefit to people and it can be a detrimental to people's lives. Both, and of course when I say this I mean it to ourselves and to others, our speech can be positive or it can be negative. It can be supportive uh, or it can be detrimental. Uh, and again, when I say right, that's a very traditional uh, translation of sama is the word. Um, and sama and right here means that which brings one in alignment with the truth. That's, a, that's part of the dictionary translation of right, is something that brings us into alignment with the truth. And that's a beautiful Western dictionary understanding that, that puts us in harmony with Buddhism because Dharma also means truth. So the the three uh, the the first two factors of um, right view and right intention are considered wisdom factors, and then the second three that I'm speaking about in this way of organizing the eightfold path are um, sila are are factors that have to do with our virtue and what we value and what's important and how we live it. And so it has to do with right speech, right action, right livelihood. And so today, tonight I'm gonna to speak, speak about right action or action that brings us in alignment with the truth or brings us in alignment with the Dharma is the other nice way to think about it. 
with the in and dharma another way to understand dharma and truth is it means the truth of the way things are the truth of reality not the truth of what we think is we're supposed to do but a but a greater truth that we begin to wake up to which is why we meditate and so one of the questions um, uh, that can come is how do you manifest, how, do you, how does one embody the Dharma all the time, 24-7? Not just as a meditation practice, but meditation being one of the practices, because then speech becomes a practice, or action becomes a practice, or livelihood, or how we live our life at home becomes practice, or how we deal with the political world becomes part of our practice, or how we deal with the social difficulties of our time and place and culture, or how do we deal with the, uh, the social, uh, political difficulties of the whole world, because we're part of the whole world and connected to the whole world. And so one of the, um, one of the questions, of course, one can ask oneself, and when I say that, I mean, of course, you can ask yourself, is what areas of your life are difficult to bring into alignment with dharma, with practice, with the truth of the way things are? And for many of us, it's, they're, they're, they're different areas. It's not the same for each person. And so I just was brainstorming about a few key places. You know, uh, how do you bring your work life in alignment with what you understand and what you intend, right? Beginning with the first two components of the Eightfold Path, right? Which is our understanding of the truth and our intention based on that understanding. How do you bring your work life in alignment with that, in harmony with that? How do you bring your uh, relationship life, whether you're, you know, in coupled in some form or another, or whether you're single? Because you're still being single implies a not relationship, right? But it's, it's still connected to relationship. It's not, being single is not independent of relationship. And of course, there's primary relationships and then there's just friendships and other kinds of relationships, family of origin relationships or work relationships. And then politics becomes an important area for us, especially at this time in the world, which in my, you know, humble, uh, slightly un-Buddhist opinion, it's just a mess in the politics of the world right now. And it's, there's a lot of dukkha. If you're new to practice, the word dukkha is uh, translated as suffering. And there's a lot of suffering happening in the world, both in this country and in the world. And we're connected to all of it in some way, shape, or form. And so what areas of life are difficult for you to practice with, to make practice? Um, for some people, it's around money itself. Money is difficult. And 
difficult doesn't mean you can't practice with it, but we don't think of it as practice, as part of what we practice with. Because all of these, whether it's work or relationship or politics or money, they all could be good or bad. Can we make all of them practice? Can we really reflect on what's right action with money or in relationship or at work? Because that starts to give, bring a different perspective into that experience of our life. And it starts to bring the Dharma into our life, not leaving the Dharma here on Sunday night at SFI or on your cushion at home, but actually living the Dharma 24-7, which I believe is the challenge that's asked of us at this time and place in both um, um, uh, Buddhist history and in all other areas of history. But even in Buddha, I think that's what Buddhist history is asking of us at this time and place, is how do we practice all the time? And how do we practice as householders? As we're not monastics, but we get to be hidden monastics if we're practicing 24-7 because that's what the monastic system does is it creates a structure for practice 24-7 and you know it, it's a beautiful calling if you're called but if you're not called the same call from the Dharma may touch your heart and so the, then the question is, how do we live the Dharma 24-7, whether we've been called to the monastic tradition or to the householder tradition? And what's beautiful about the Eightfold Path, which the Buddha makes very clear, is it's not just for monastics, right? I mean, even the, what I'm talking about, speech, action, livelihood, like, that wasn't the, that's not the monastic thing, livelihood. Their livelihood is clear. It's all by dana. That's how they survive. So livelihood becomes part of the Buddha's teaching on, the Buddha's teaching on the Dharma. And it's what he taught from the beginning of his teaching all the way till the end of his life. And especially, I may have said this the first the first week about the Eightfold Path when he was um, at the end of his life and he knew he was going to die soon. He went around to all his communities where he's taught, where he taught a little bit to say goodbye, but taught for his last teachings. And his last teachings were the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And so this is what he gave to us and to the world and to history. Um, some people find it difficult to bring fun into their practice. By fun, I mean however you might have fun. Maybe some of you might like to bowl. Which How many people here like to bowl? Oh my God, I love that. That's like more people than I've ever met who like to bowl. <laughs> I mean, it's just... It's, I'm just getting outside of my world. I'm not really a bowler, so I'm like, wow, people bowl. <laughs> but, and so, how do you practice when you're bowling? You know, how do you make bowling part of right action? 
What, what does it mean to, to in, manifest the Dharma when one is bowling? Or, you know, I like to bike ride, not too much these days, but, and, but still it's the question, how do you do it when you're doing something you really like that's fun and meaningless in a certain way? It's not deep dharma, it's not the most profound emptiness or anything, but you could discover the most profound emptiness in bowling. I, and I know that's true, even though I'm not a bowler. But, um, but I've seen it enough in my own practice, both on retreat and off retreat. You never know when the dharma will begin to reveal deeper layers of the truth of the way things are. <laughs> and so, just to reflect for yourself, what areas of life are, aren't practice for you now? Right? Where, oh, that's, you don't even think of it as practice. Or you haven't manifested it's as practice. And I mentioned work or relationship or politics or money or fun or health is another area. Right? And what's right action in terms of our health? And what's right action if our health is good? And what, what's right action if our health is not so good? And because at some time we'll all deal with both sides of all of these questions all of these components and just <coughs> excuse me I mean this is like I think it's ramping up a little because I'm in the middle of the talk now so please uh, my apologies but you know but it's also practice right even my, my um, allergy is just practice you know, because it's not under my control, and it's probably not under your control, right? And yet it's here and it becomes part of what's happening. So how do we practice with it kindly, clearly, with some understanding of, you know, what's happening, and also in a way that uh, is not being unpresent with it, but being very present with it. Because it's true. Um, <clears throat> so, very traditionally in Buddhism, right action is usually talked about in terms of uh, the five precepts. And the five precepts are the precepts, and they're put in the negative, so I'll say them that way, is that one trains oneself in, by not killing not killing uh, humans, not killing any living being, not killing any living being, um, not stealing or not taking what has not been given, right? One trains not taking what has not been given. Or what train, one trains oneself not to misuse one's sexuality one trains oneself not to misuse one's speech. One trains oneself not to misuse intoxicants. And 
these are very traditional and very important, and they also have a, a positivity, a positive side to them, which I'll mention in a second. Yeah, I'll mention that now. The positive side, meaning not killing, means, oh, we're developing a real respect for life, not just our life, all life, all human life, all not human life. Right? And it's really, I mean, that's been one of the most beautiful things to watch in my own practice as I've woken up a little bit to watch the appreciation for life in all its forms. And it doesn't mean I always like everything, right? I'm not a big cockroach guy or I'm not a big, you know, certain insects aren't my favorites. And, but still, I can see, oh, there's life there. And it brings up this, this mystery, which is, what is life? And how is it that life takes all these forms? And, you'll, and, and if, if when I really see the life that's here, I, I can see the, the uh, in, interconnectedness with all of life. Because it's just wanting to live, and wanting to be safe, and wanting to be well. And I don't care whether it's a cockroach or a whale. Right? Did you all see the whale who died in uh, Oakland Estuary? I can't say that. Estuary. Yeah, it's really, you know, just this beautiful animal that is dead now. That, of course, like us, just wants to live and be well. And all, and all life seeks that. All sentient life. And there's some questions about other kinds of life, too, but I, I often feel that about all life. Oh, it all wants to live, whether it's uh, sentient or not sentient, like trees or flowers aren't considered sentient life. And so they, have a, they, they hold a different uh, status in Buddhism. But personally, I mean, the trees are like teachers. I mean, they're just amazing and this wasn't how I grew up right I'm a very city guy I'm not a big nature guy growing up but um, but the the trees even the trees any everywhere it's like oh my it's life where does life come from really you know we could have a world that didn't have life in it in that way so you know the the training to not kill is about respecting life and a little bit being aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life. And so we may be, our right action may work to protect uh, all the living things or at this point to protect the planet itself because the planet's being threatened. And the second the second uh, precept, right, is about not taking what has not been given. And it's about generosity and learning something about the goodness of actually, it's all given. Everything is given, right? This day was given, right? This, this world was given, right? And our life was given. And it's just, and so it's, it's starting to value the 
goodness or the generosity that is inherent in reality. <clears throat> and, and especially in terms of the precept of um, uh, not taking things that haven't been freely offered, is seeing what's right about freely offering what we have at times, whether it's our time or our, our um, resources or our uh, skills or our ability to help, right? Whether it's, um, you know, in, in our families or in our communities or in the world, right? Acting to promote social justice or to promote the well-being of everybody because really that's what's needed for the whole world. Everybody needs help. Um, there's, you know, I'm a little bit of a sports guy, a little bit, and, you know, I like to watch basketball, and two of the best players recently um, came out and talked about their depression and how powerful that's been for them, not just, they, and they needed help, and now they're, now they're doing, there's a commercial where they talk about it, and they say, you know, everybody needs help sometimes. And that's a really, it's so, and it's breaking the mold of these strong men who are really great athletes and, you know, playing on championship teams. And they're being real about their vulnerability. And that's a great gift that they're offering, right? And I just appreciate it because they're offering it for the well-being of others because they've received the gift for, of help from from their teams, finally, and then also from, you know, therapists and things that were very not their way, but then they saw how helpful it was. And the third precept about not misusing sexuality, I mean, that's very clear. It's about avoiding misconduct and awareness of the, the power of sexuality and the beauty of it and the need to be respectful of power in all its forms, whether it's sexuality or speech or intoxicants, they all have their power. And so it's learning something about really coming into alignment with power and then using it skillfully when it's appropriate. And with sexuality, I, I really think about it as appreciating eros because then one sees that sexuality is a subset of the erotic world. And the erotic world is much bigger and we're all part of it. And we all have the experience of the eros of reality. And, uh, you know, one of my monastic friends, he always used to say, he said, oh, I'm so glad I'm, I'm a monastic because I get to love everybody totally. And I have erotic feelings and I don't have to act on them because I could never choose who should I act on with. So this is much easier for him. But it's also, there's something about the eros of being alive that gets expressed in sexuality, but it's not the only place to express, express our eros or the, the beauty of life itself or the magic and the mystery and the intimacy we have as human beings one to another. Even, even the most simple intimacy of 
having eye-to-eye contact is something something that touches us about it because there's something so like, oh, we're here together in this way that we often feel uncomfortable with. And of course, sexuality has that uncomfortability also. And so, so the positivity of Eros that lives everywhere. And then the, the, the not misusing speech is really about what is loving speech? And I talked about this last week. And, and what does it mean to listen fully? Listen to one, listen with one's body, heart, and mind, with listening with the totality of who we are, not just waiting to say our part, but really opening to the person one is listening to fully and not just thinking about what we're going to say and what we would do or how we would do it. And deep listening to others begins to tear down the barriers that have been constructed through history and over time and for all different ways between our differences, right? Whether it's about gender or sexuality or sexual orientation or about uh, race or, or, or age or economic differences, whatever it might be. If we don't listen to one another, we end up always believing our illusions about the other. And it's one of the great sufferings of our time and place that I believe is coming to the foreground, hopefully so we can keep liberating this me and them. You know, that there's one one side that I'm on and one side that you're on. Because as far as I can tell, it's all of us together, whether we like it or not, whether we can, you know, whether we agree or not, it's still all of us together. And then the last about not misusing intoxicants. Um, you know, intoxicants actually even have their time and place, at, you know, for many cultures. And human beings have used intoxicants forever. And I get, and you know, I don't tend to use much intoxicants these days, uh, especially because I'm not an alcohol person and it just never have been. And, uh, and I mean, I smoked a lot of pot when I was young and, and actually my wife and I went to a pot store because you could buy pot now anywhere and we bought a bunch of things. It was like, and we tried, tried it and it's like, oh, we don't want to do this. It's just not our thing <laughs> anymore. But it was interesting just to see what is it and why. And, and that at sometimes it's important. And I know many, many, many people who were really impacted in positive ways with psychedelics. And I've been reading some articles lately about how positively um, psychedelics have been, are being used to help people around depression, around addiction, because it changes one's perspective on reality. And really, my, in my idea, you don't need the psychedelics. Do deep practice. It changes your perspective of reality. And it's, it's free, 
meaning you don't you know it's you don't have to go to the pop store for it and also it's uh, it doesn't have any hangover that's really what I didn't like about the pot stuff I, I don't I didn't mind being high for an hour or two whatever it was but I don't like the next day and I felt it and you know maybe I'm just getting old and too sensitive and all that stuff but I don't remember that from when I was a kid. And of course, many of you know the pots much, much better than when I was a kid. <laughs> Sorry, I keep meaning to turn this off. Um, so right action, uh, then, is about how we live our life. And how do we bring it into accord with what we care about, what we value, what's of import to us? And how do we do it kindly? That's also another important part of right action, compassion. The word karuna from the Pali, which is translated as compassion, means active empathy, willingness to empathize with the pain of oneself and others, really, to, to really have a perspective that is kind towards our pain and towards other people's pain. And really, compassion, uh, real compassion is for self and others rooted in wisdom and seeing the way things are that this is part of how things are. It's not our fault. It's not actually their fault. The people who we see are, you know, suffering. In, right? We can think, oh, it's their fault. They didn't do this, they didn't do that. Well, that's a very simple, in my idea, surface perspective. It's not seeing the depth of the causes and conditions that cause suffering. And so the wisdom prajna is the real is a very important, and it's part of what happens when we see things as they are, is that we start to let go of our ego identity a little bit, and we start to see from the perspective of Buddha nature, from our heartfulness, from our kindfulness, from our a more fullness of who and what we are. <coughs> Beautiful quote I found here that I meant to say earlier, but I'm going to say it now. From Simone de Beauvoir. Beauvoir. Simone, woman, French woman, Simone de Beauvoir. I believe she was a writer. Is that right? Yes. Pardon? And a philosopher. And a philosopher. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, she said, to be moral in which, of course, what we're talking about is ethics here. When I talk about the precepts, these are ethical precepts. She said to be moral is to discover fundamentally one's own being. <clears throat> to be moral is to discover fundamentally one's own being. And I'll say more about this, because the morality is part of what's being pointed at. In when we're looking at the precepts, which is ethics and um, how we act ethically, whether it's with speech or with action in terms of uh, 
in terms of sexuality or speech or, or um, in terms of not taking what hasn't been given. And the other word that I like that's used a lot in Buddhism is virtue, virtue, uh, which has to do with, you know, a kind of uh, uprightness or having principles and integrity. And these are all words that are related to morality, virtue and ethics, morality, integrity is a word I like a lot quality of, of being honest and having principles and living by those principles. And that's very, changes one's whole life when one really values something and says, I'm, I'm going to live this way. And actually, what I've seen in myself is I don't actually ever say those things to myself. I just see them start to happen and then happen over and over and I see how good it feels not to be uh, doing wrong actions because then you don't have to think about it again. I said this last week talking about speech. I think it was Benjamin Franklin says, uh, 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 you know, right speech means you never have to, uh, you never have to think about what you said. Saying the truth means you never have to remember what you said. That's what he said. Pardon? Pardon? Mark Twain. Mark Twain, okay. Same guy. No, you know. no, no, thank you. Mark Twain. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, saying the truth means you don't have to remember what you said. That's what's pointed at as, as with the uprightness. You know, when we come into alignment with the truth and with what we care about. <clears throat> um, the Dalai Lama said, he said, according to Buddhism, compassion is an aspiration, a state of mind, wanting others to be free from suffering. It's not, but, and then he goes on, it's not passive. It's not empathy alone, but rather an empathic altruism that actively strives to free others from suffering. So now you're hearing a beautiful connection between compassion and right action, right? That compassion is an aspiration, a state of mind, wanting others to be free, but it's not passive, not empathy alone, but rather an empathic altruism that actively strives to free others from suffering. Genuine compassion must have both wisdom and loving kindness. That is to say, one must understand the nature of suffering from which we wish to free self or others, and one must experience a deep intimacy and empathy with other sentient beings in order to help free them. And that's, that's a beautiful understanding because so often we see people suffering and we get mad at them. And I'm talking about especially in politics because it's all just suffering. Even if they're on the other side, they're suffering. And their, their, their unskillful actions are part of suffering. They're, the way their suffering is getting expressed is acting like, in my common language, idiots sometimes, because people do politically, and yet they're suffering. 
and seeing the suffering allows us to be more empathic with them and then we can get closer to them rather than having to push them away. We can get nose to nose if we need to, to say, no, that's not appropriate. But we don't have to hate them to be nose to nose. And so integrity is the state of being whole and undivided, right? being whole, W-H-O-L-E. And, and undivided. And so integrity points to a kind of unity or coherence here, right here, a coherence here, or a, a cohesion, or a sense of solid, solidarity with oneself. And so as Simone de Beauvoir said, to be moral is to discover fundamentally one's own being. That's, that's, that's the best thing I'm saying all night is quoting her, really, because she's pointing to the depth of what's possible for us in terms of um, skillful right action and, and the precepts. That kind of uh, consistency that creates a certain durability and a wholeness of who and what we are. <clears throat> right action also sometimes is translated as right conduct, and one trains oneself to act appropriately. Appropriately means not by the rules, but appropriate to the situation, to the time, to the place, to the moment, to what's actually needed right now. And that's where the mindfulness is so important. I think I said this before. Well, maybe I didn't. find it. I didn't say, oh, the basis of right action, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, the basis of right action is to do everything in mindfulness. The basis of right action is to do everything in mindfulness. So that means we're fully here so we can respond appropriately. We can respond skillfully. And skillful, again, is not just based on rules. It's based about what's needed at this time, this place, this person, this situation, these conditions, and understanding the big picture as best we can. How we might be able to act in the world and our life. And so this mindfulness that Thich Nhat Hanh points at is also talked about in terms of action by Saira uh, Utejaniya, who said in Vipassana we want to know what is happening. We want to be aware of what is happening, why it is happening, and what to do about it. Uh, that's his understanding of Vipassana. Right? We want to know what is happening, why it is happening, and what to do about it. And he also says, he says, first, we need to accept whatever is happening and acknowledge, like if we acknowledge that we're worried or we're sick or something, and then ask, what am I going to do about it? 
one needs to bring wisdom to deal with dukkha so one can begin to be free and to respond with right action. And it's okay for Patrick to sleep as long as he doesn't snore too much, because then I'm going to wake him up, which I've warned him about. But he's good that way. He wakes up easily when I mention it. Thank you, Patrick. So this is from, uh, I believe, a Zen practitioner, R.H. Blythe, who said, perfect perfection does not mean perfect actions in a perfect world. Perfection does not mean perfect actions in a perfect world, but appropriate actions in an imperfect world. That's good dharma, in my opinion. Perfection does not mean perfect actions in a perfect world, but appropriate actions in an imperfect world. That's, I love that, because it so brings the paradox of the Dharma to the foreground. It's not just A or B. It's A and B, and neither A and B, and they're all part of the Dharma. And here's another example, again from the Zen tradition. One day, Chow Cho fell down in the snow and called out, Help me up! Help me up! And a monk came by and lay down beside him. Chow Cho got up and went away. <laughs> now that's a beautiful teaching, right? He's, Chow Cho falls down in the snow and calls, Help me up! Help me up! And the monk comes down and lays down beside him. And Chow Cho got up and walked away. It's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> you know, I feel like, oh, there's nothing more for me to say. Because really, he did what was needed, right? Wasn't He didn't reach down and he gave, he gave him something else. And in, in modern psychological language, we would say, oh, he mirrored him. And so the mirroring allowed him to get up. You know, and he, the monk was a very sophisticated psychological monk, so. And then, this is not from a monk, but somebody who practiced Zen, who is, I believe, our governor now, Jerry Brown, right? He practiced Zen. Uh, and also in the Christian tradition, he was a monk, I believe. Um, he said, sometimes the highest form of action is inaction, right? The highest form of action is inaction. Like just that, that's very important. So we're hearing now, it's not just fixed rules. Can we really be in our life, in our relationships, in our work, with money, with health, with fun, so we can see what is right action really now, today, here, in this situation. And it's not going to be the same, even with all, all the same circumstances, the next day, because you aren't the same person the next day. And the next day is not yesterday, right? It's a new time and place. And of course, there are often misunderstandings about what does it mean to act ethically because people think, oh, you do the right thing and then it's okay. 
This is a story from Sharon Salzberg. She said, during the student uprising in uh, Burma, which is now called Myanmar, um, uh, soldiers, when soldiers entered a temple to roust out the dissidents of the students who were rebelling, they would take off their shoes, yet hold on to their d guns. In other words, to be, you go into a monastery, you take off, first thing is you take off your shoes, right? And they took off their shoes, yet they held on to their guns. They were showing respect to the Buddha while overlooking the Dharma. Right? It's, it's essential to be accountable for our actions and not overlook the Dharma in any domain, Sharon says. <coughs> and then the last piece, which is very much in accord with uh, to be moral is to discover fundamentally one's own being. This is from uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle, who said, surrender is perfectly compatible with taking action. Surrender is perfectly compatible with taking action, initiating change, or achieving goals. But in the surrendered state, a totally different energy, a different quality flows into your doing. Surrender reconnects you with the source energy of being. Surrender reconnects one with the source energy of being. And what he's calling surrender, I'm just going to think of as actually being mindful, being present, being here in a full way, body, heart, and mind. And with that connection with our nature, with our Buddha nature, which is what I think he's talking about here, um, we start to, um, we can take action or not take action, or we can initiate change, or we can achieve goals. And, but there's something more, the totality of the human potential is then functioning. And that's what we're all seeking and aiming towards and giving ourselves to so we can wake up together. Oh, maybe I'll, I'll end with the Buddha instead of Eckhart Tolle. The Buddha said, uh, <clears throat> He says, however many holy words you read, however many you speak, what good will they do you if you do not act upon them? He continues, he says, the only real failure in life is not to be true to the best one knows. The only real failure in life is not to be true to the best one knows. I'm going to stop here oh, a later than I thought. Um, any pressing questions? We have a few minutes. Any pre pressing questions, comments, reactions?
something you want to add to the talk? Please. Hi, Eugene. I'm Michael. Hi, Michael. And, um, you know, right action. I, I have a son who's 17. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happened in Texas on Friday and these continuing shootings in high school. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm suffering from his suffering as a teenage young man who is just having to grow up through this. Right. I mean, we went through a lot as teens, but not, you know, just random killings. That's a different world. A different world. Yeah. And their real um, feelings of uh, being scared now to even like go to high school. Mm. Okay. But but bringing it to right action, uh, you mentioned in the talk um, the need to seek out and ask for help. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I'm feeling these primarily young boys, young men, quite disturbed, are, are not connecting with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, they need help, <clears throat> and, and they're not capable, it appears to me, of, of seeking out that help. Right. Well, they're you know? young, and you, they may need some guidance or some help from you, right, of mm -hmm. course. And so then the question is how to skillfully <clears throat> um, open up that question for somebody, right, especially a young man, because I wouldn't just tell a young man, oh, you need to go blah, 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 because young men like to rebel and, you know, don't like to be told things like that right. often. So, you know, again, so then bringing up the question of uh, how would he think to help people who are dealing with this? How would he think or talk to him about other cultures where this isn't so brand new, right? Where this happens commonly. I mean, you know, for African-American people, this has been part of their culture for a few hundred years here of being threatened or in different countries where this is part of life, right? And so you can, if you broaden it, then it may help him see. Oh, you, you could ask him the same question you're asking yourself, which is, oh, how, do you, how do you, can you help somebody or how can somebody learn to ask for help when it's really difficult? and when they don't think there's help out there or don't know that there's help out there. And that becomes part of living the Dharma. Really, because part of what you're bringing in here is the investigative factor about we don't know exactly how to do that. And one, yeah. And so, yeah, and right action it means, uh, first of all, what you're doing, which is bringing up the question and then seeing what's appropriate. And has your son seen the commercial with uh, Kevin Love, I believe, is one of the basketball players? Yeah. yeah. And I'm I've, not sure. But. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the other man. To, to, I, I don't have his name. I don't, he didn't play against the Warriors the last three years, so <laughs> I'm not so familiar with him. DeMarcus DeRozan, I believe. Pardon? DeMar DeRozan. 
DeMar DeRozan, thank you. Same thing, you know, they needed help. They each said, oh, we needed help, and we went and got help for depression. And that's not a real male thing, you know, in that, especially in their worlds, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't mean it doesn't happen, it's not male. Oh, you don't talk about it, you know, you don't, you don't let people know that you're, you're having a hard time. You're making millions of dollars playing a sport that you love, and you're depressed. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a lot of self-judgment. So, right. so, yeah, and of course, you know, he's still learning. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's hard as a parent, as a as a loving father, to to just witness what a young person is having to deal with yeah. today. And, and you're right about like the African American culture or something, which I'm not particularly connected with. Right. Having to deal with that for centuries, right. but this is a new thing, <clears throat> relatively, since say. 20 plus years, Columbine, you know, this, yeah. this constant kind of right. event. Right, but, it, but it, I mean, so, but the, if you keep broadening it to him, it might help you talk about the impact, because it's been happening in this country forever for certain minority yeah. groups. And like so that. really important to mm -hmm. keep pointing out that, oh, this is a reality that human beings have dealt with and been amazingly noble in dealing with it. Or, you know, or South Africa is yeah. just such a great example because Mandela was just a bodhisattva of a person, you know, as was Martin Luther King, you know, it was fantastic. But, you know, they don't get um, talked about in terms of my reality. Right, and yet they're part of my reality, and my dukkha relates also to the dukkha that they have nobly lived through. Right, so yeah, sure. Thank you. Great, uh, thank you. Very important piece, and given time, I apologize. I went too long on the talk, but we're going to stop. Stop now. Thank you. Let's sit for a minute. Uh, let's just offer our good wishes to the whole world, you know, for the suffering of the inappropriate actions that people enact and manifest over the history of humanity and in every place on this earth. Offering our good wishes that may the suffering that causes that kind of uh, inappropriate action, may it be understood and not clung to and not acted out of. And so, sending our wishes in every direction, in this world and every world, may all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from confusion, free from misunderstanding their true nature, 
the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings wake up. May we all be free. May we all realize our Buddha nature. a few minutes to spare, um, you could help us, uh, you know, uh, put the room away. We appreciate the help. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.